Morning, uh, everyone, and uh, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation. And I have got an extraordinarily long Bible reading for you today. Um, it encompasses chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Revelation. And you might think, well, I maybe even going to not bother saying anything, but yes, I will. And um, uh, But it's so important that you hear this word. This book, remember, is um, the book that comes with a blessing to those who hear it. It says, as we hear the words of the book of Revelation, we're blessed, and God will continue to bless us as we hear these words read to us just now. Now, do follow along in any version that you care to, but I'm going to read just for the purposes of reading and, um, and you listening from the message uh, translation, because it's maybe helpful for just the idea being that we grab a hold of the big picture of this passage um, the section that we're looking at today is the longest section that we're going to be looking at together, and I want you to get the idea of the big picture of this passage as we read it. Let's begin at chapter 8 and verse 1. When the Lamb ripped off the seventh seal, heaven fell quiet, complete silence for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who were always in readiness before God handed seven trumpets. Then another angel carrying a gold censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of incense so that he could offer up the prayers of all the holy people of God on the golden altar before the throne. Smoke billowed up from the incense-laced prayers of the holy ones, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel filled the censer with fire from the altar and heaved it to earth. It set off thunders, voices, lightnings, and an earthquake. The seven angels with the trumpets got ready to blow them. At the first trumpet blast, hail and fire mixed with blood were dumped on the earth. A third of the earth was scorched, a third of the trees, and every blade of green grass burned to a crisp. The second angel trumpeted. Something like a huge mountain blazing with fire was flung into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living sea creatures died, and a third of the ships sank. The third angel trumpeted. A huge star blazing like a torch fell from heaven, wiping out a third of the rivers and a third of the springs. The star's name was Wormwood. A third of the water turned bitter, and many people died from the poison water. The fourth angel trumpeted. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were hit, blacked out by a third, both day and night, in one-third blackout. I looked hard. I, I heard a lone eagle flying through middle heaven, crying out ominously, doom, doom, doom to everyone left on earth. There are three more angels about to blow their trumpets. Doom is on its way. The fifth angel trumpeted. 
I saw a star plummet from heaven to earth. The star was handed a key to the well of the abyss. He unlocked the well of the abyss. Smoke poured out of the well, billows and billows of smoke, sun and air in blackout from smoke pouring out of the well. Then out of the smoke crawled locusts with the venom of scorpions. They were given their orders, don't hurt the grass, don't hurt anything green, don't hurt a single tree, only men and women, and then only those who lack the seal of God on their foreheads. They were ordered to torture but not kill, torture them for five months, the pain like a scorpion sting. When this happens, people are going to prefer death to torture, look for ways of to kill themselves, but they won't find a way. Death will have gone into hiding. The locusts looked like horses ready for war. They had gold crowns, human faces, women's hair, the teeth of lions and iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was the sound of horse-drawn chariots charging into battle. Their tails were equipped with stings like scorpion tails. With those tails, they were ordered to torture the human race for five months. They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, Apollyon destroyer. The first doom is past, two dooms yet to come. The sixth angel trumpeted. I heard a voice speaking to the sixth angel from the horns of the golden altar before God. Let the four angels loose, the angels confined at the great river Euphrates. The four angels were untied and let loose. Four angels all prepared for the exact year, month, day and even hour when they were to kill a third of the human race. The number of the army of horsemen was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard the count and saw both horses and riders in my vision, fiery breastplates on the riders, lion heads on the horses, breathing out fire and smoke and brimstone. With these three weapons, fire and smoke and brimstone, they killed a third of the human race. The horses killed with their mouths and tails. Their serpent-like tails also had heads that wreaked havoc. The remaining men and women who weren't killed by these weapons went on their merry way, didn't change their way of life, didn't quit worshipping demons, didn't quit centering their lives around lumps of gold and silver and brass, hunks of stone and wood that couldn't see or hear or move. There wasn't a sign of a change of heart. They plunged right on in their murderous, occult, promiscuous, and thieving ways. I saw another angel, powerful angel, coming down out of heaven wrapped in a cloud. There was a rainbow over his head and his face was sun radiant, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a small book open in his hand. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and then called out thunderously a lion roar. And when he called out, the seven thunders called back. And when the seven thunders spoke, I started to write it all down. But a voice out of heaven stopped me saying, seal with silence the seven thunders. Don't write a word. Then the angel I saw astride the sea and land lifted his hand to heaven and swore by the one living forever and ever who created heaven and everything in it, earth and everything in it, sea and everything in it, that time was up. 
And when the seventh angel blew his trumpet, which he was about to do, the mystery of God, all the plans he had revealed to his servants, the prophets, would be completed. The voice out of heaven spoke to me again, go, take the book held open in the hand of the angel astride the sea and the earth. I went up to the angel and said, give me the little book. And he said, take it, then eat it. It will taste sweet like honey, but turn sour in your stomach. I took the little book from the angel's hand, and it was sweet honey in my mouth. But when I swallowed, my stomach curdled. Then I was told, you must go back and prophesy again over many peoples and nations and languages and kings. I was given a stick for a measuring rod and told, get up and measure God's temple and altar and everyone worshiping in it. Exclude the outside court. Don't measure it. It's been handed over to non-Jewish outsiders. They'll desecrate the holy city for 42 months. Meanwhile, I'll provide my two witnesses dressed in sackcloth. They'll prophesy for 1,260 days. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, standing at attention before God on earth. If anyone tries to hurt them, a blast of fire from their mouths will incinerate them, burn them to a crisp, just like that. They'll have power to seal the sky so that it doesn't rain for the time of their prophesying. Power to turn rivers and springs to blood. Power to hit earth with any and every disaster as often as they want. When they've completed their witness, the beast from the abyss will emerge and fight them, conquer and kill them, leaving their corpses exposed on the street of the great city spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, the same city where their master was crucified. For three and a half days, they'll be there, exposed, prevented from getting a decent burial, stared at by the curious from all over the world. Those people will cheer at the spectacle, shouting, good riddance, calling for a celebration. For these two prophets pricked the conscience of all the people on earth, made it impossible for them to enjoy their sins. Then, after three and a half days, the living spirit of God will enter them. They're on their feet. And all those gloating spectators will be scared to death. I heard a strong voice out of heaven calling, come up here. And up they went to heaven, wrapped in a cloud. Their enemies watching it all. At that moment, there was a gigantic earthquake. A tenth of the city fell to ruin. 7,000 perished in the earthquake. The rest frightened to the core of their being. Frightened into giving honor to the God of heaven. Second doom is past. The third doom coming right on its heels. The seventh angel trumpeted. A crescendo of voices in heaven sang out. The kingdom of the world is now the kingdom of our God and his Messiah. He will rule forever and ever. The 24 elders seated before God on their thrones fell to their knees, worshipped and sang. We thank you, sovereign strong God, who is and who was. You took your great power and took over reigned. The angry nations now get a taste of your anger. The time has come to judge the dead, to reward your servants, all prophets and saints, reward small and great, who fear your name and destroy the destroyers of earth. The doors of God's temple in heaven flew open, and the ark of his covenant was clearly seen, surrounded by flashes of lightning, loud shouts, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a fierce 
hailstorm. Wow. I don't know if a preacher's ever had such a long Bible reading in this church, but I hope you haven't just been um, kind of bombarded there, but you capture something of the amazing vision that John is trying to convey to us in his book. And these are not easy words, are they? And we're going to just have a look at them um, now in a few uh, minutes together. What to do when you hear the alarm? That's the title I've landed this on. And we're not going to be saying everything that could be said about those uh, words we've just read, but just focusing on one thing. I think it was um, the end of last September, maybe the beginning of October, I needed to look up the actual date and forgot to do so. But one evening at that time last year, the church burglar alarm went off. And you know, if you've ever been in this building when the alarm goes off, it is very, very noisy. When Graham Bruno's parents across the road heard the alarm going off, they alerted Graham, who in turn called me. And we agreed that I would pick him up uh, on my way to church, and then we would go together to check the church building over. And after a quick uh, walk around the building in the dark, uh, we looked around upstairs before switching on all the external lights and heading back down to check uh, the basement. And only then did we notice at the back of the building a broken window and realized that the church had indeed been burgled. The burglar had got away, but they'd had to flee empty-handed because we'd showed up. The alarm had done its job and alerted us to the situation a situation that we never that we hoped would have never have happened many of you will maybe at work be used to regular fire drills uh, when the alarm goes off you're told to um, pick up your coat if it's to hand leave everything else uh, behind and use the fire exits to leave the building calmly and in order gathering again at the designated safe point, wherever that is, and um, make sure that everyone has been accounted for. Those drills happen so that if and when um, such an event happens for real, uh, and it will be very unexpected, everyone knows what to do. And they're all able to escape um, what is maybe likely to be a much more hazardous situation. Now, our journey through the revelation that John is experiencing now brings us to this long central uh, scene where again and again and again, trumpets sound out. Seven times, seven trumpets, seven alarm calls. And we're learning, aren't we, that the number seven means that something is as complete as it ever can be. A complete alarm once is not enough. These calls alert us to grave danger. The alarm sounds to warn us of the dire consequence of inaction and prompt us to take appropriate actions. 
let's just remind us how we've got to this point in John's vision. Whilst worshipping one day in his prison cell on the island of Patmos, um, John has a vision of God, the, the risen Christ, um, gives him seven messages to seven churches, representing the complete message to the complete church through all of time. And then John is ushered into the very throne room of heaven, where he sees that God is on the throne. I think that's such an important point for us to remember today. God is on the throne. And he's holding a sealed scroll that no one is qualified to open. And just when it seems that we are forever going to be stuck as we are, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, steps forward and takes the scroll because he alone is worthy to do so. That is, that in the whole universe, he alone is the one who is qualified and able to unfurl the future that God has in store and to ensure that that future actually comes into being. So he breaks the seals that are on that scroll one by one, each time triggering a fearsome response as the kingdom of the world resists the approaching kingdom of God. In that short intermission in chapter 7, we learned in a flashback that before Jesus even begins to unfurl God's future, many people are first sealed to be part of that future with a mark of God placed on them. And we remembered what the Apostle Paul said at the beginning of the book of Ephesians when he said that when we believe in Jesus, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Friends, if we know and love Jesus, if we believe in him, we have that seal of God on our lives. We are stamped with the protective seal of God. We are stamped with the assurance of God's future. That's good news. That's great news to hold on to. In a flash forward then, we see that those who are sealed from every nation and tribe and people and language are gathered around the throne of God at some future point as his kingdom finally comes in all its fullness. Now as John's vision continues, we cut back to just before the time that the seventh and final seal is broken on that scroll. God's future is on the cusp of being realized. And as we move towards that reality, seven alarm calls sound out. So I want you to think this morning of what I have to share with you as something of uh, a fire drill, something of kind of just making sure that you understand what the alarm, when you hear it, means. Secondly, I, I kind of want you to know what to do when you hear what the alarm. It's no good just knowing what it means. You need to know what to do when you hear the alarm. And thirdly, I want you all to be ready for when we hear that alarm going off. So, first of all, what do these repeated alarm calls actually mean? Well, trumpets are used um, in quite a few places in the Bible. Um, in the book of Numbers, they gather um, the people to a holy assembly. In the book of Joel, they announce um, 
feast days. Uh, in the book of Second Kings, they proclaim a new king. In the book of Ezekiel, they're used by the watchman on the walls who sees danger approaching the city. But perhaps um, the account of the fall of Jericho, back at the beginning of the book of Joshua, um, has the most resonance with this section of Revelation. Uh, back in Joshua chapter 6, um, the Lord, Jehovah God, the only God, gives Joshua this very strange battle plan. He says, thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, that is the ark of the covenant. On the seventh day, you shall march round the city seven times, and the priests shall blow those trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. This is precisely what happens. When the seven trumpets sound on the seventh day, the invincible, unshakable city of Jericho crumbles to the judgment of God. Judgment. That's what these trumpet blasts stand for. It's not an easy thing for us to speak about today. It's not something that people much care to hear about. It's not something I like very much to talk about. The judgment of God on a rebellious creation. The judgment of God on men and women who've abandoned God's ways. Humanity that is determined to go it alone, blatantly ignoring the maker's instructions. Human beings, men and women, you and I, we may well ignore our maker, but revelation assures us that our maker does not ignore us. Nor can he ignore the mess we're making of the world that he has made. So many are getting trampled in that headlong rush to go it alone, to look after self, number one. So much of the earth is ruined as humanity seeks only to exploit it, no matter what the cost. But John's vision here in Revelation has God seated on the throne at the center of the universe. God has not abdicated his power or responsibility or his authority. The creator is determined to set everything back in order. Restoration demands judgment of what should not be there, and of humanity that seeks only its own ends. God will not let people get away with how they've mistreated one another. That, that's got to be good news. He will not allow evil to prevail. That's got to be good news. He will not nod quietly at the side as his creation is abused and his instructions are ignored. Justice demands that God acts. And so do the prayers of the saints. That's where we start in, uh, where we read today in the beginning of chapter eight. All the prayers that are ever prayed, piling up on the altar before God in heaven, demanding a response. 
You know, every prayer, everyone that says, how long, Lord? Every time that we say the Lord's Prayer and we say that line, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Every one of those prayers. Notice how at the start of chapter 8, the seven trumpets start to sound their warnings as a response to the prayers of the saints. And that doesn't mean special people who are set apart by others, but ordinary people just like you and me, set apart by God in Jesus. So these prayers that are on the altar of God, they, they are, there's, your prayers are there, and my prayers are there, our prayers are there, joining the prayers of people from all over the world and all through time, gathering up there on the altar of God. Every prayer ever prayed sits there before God waiting to be fully answered. You know, thank God we have part answers to our prayers, things to encourage us along the way, but your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to see that prayer answered. And often we make way too little of prayer, particularly our own prayers. Listen to this incredible reflection on prayer by the 17th century poet George Herbert. Prayer, the church's banquet, angel's age, God's breath in man returning to his birth. The soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage. The Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth. Engine against the almighty sinner's tower. Reverse thunder, Christ's side piercing spear. The six days world transposing in an hour. A kind of tune which all things hear and fear. Softness and peace and joy and love and bliss. Exalted manner. Gladness of the best, heaven in ordinary, man well-dressed, the Milky Way, the bird of paradise, church bells beyond the stars heard, the soul's blood, the land of spices, something understood. I think that poem captures something of the mystery of prayer. Reversed thunder, words that shake the heavens. How long, O Lord, your kingdom come. And it encourages us to keep working at it, to keep praying, to keep praying on our own, to keep praying together, to keep piling up those prayers on the altar of God because they're all, they're all going to be answered, every single one. Today, words of judgment and words about judgment are just like John's experience in his vision. In chapter 10, uh, verses 8 and 10, John takes that little scroll that's offered to him uh, from the hand of the angel and he, he eats it, symbolizing how we each in turn need to internalize God's words to us. And at first, like him, we find a, a sweetness in God's word, a word of hope that reassures, a word of love that comforts, a word of mercy that refreshes, a word of grace that's beyond our any expectation, and a word of salvation that satisfies. 
In God's word, we find our future. We find so much. But later, as it settles in us, like John, we often find those words hard to digest. The same word that speaks love and mercy and grace and salvation also speaks judgment. Speaks judgment on a world that chooses to ignore it. So these alarm calls are sent to call us all to attention. They remind us that the salvation of God has a serious purpose because the salvation of God is sent to save us from the judgment of God. And they warn the world around us of the consequences of ignoring the salvation of God. When then are these trumpets sounding their warning blasts? I want to suggest that as the first trumpet to the sixth trumpet sound, they're not, um, they're not, giving, they're not sounding the final judgment of God. They're not sounding that judgment that's going to affect everyone, everywhere, and through all time. We'll get to that later in John's vision. So when do these warnings sound? These warnings, I want to suggest, are the alarm calls of the judgment of God through all of history. Just as the seals speak of the gradual unfurling of God's purpose through all of history. There are perhaps maybe two ways of looking at the same thing from different perspectives. The seven seals show the coming kingdom of God throughout history from the perspective of the church, from God's people's point of view. While the seven trumpets show the painful consequence of ignoring God's word shown from the perspective of people in the wider world throughout all of history. I want you to notice, maybe you did as we read them through, that the proportion affected by each trumpet call is never greater than a third. And even the worst of them are limited in their duration. Each of these judgments are about God allowing things to take a course that they'd chosen to take. They're the inevitable consequence of choosing to live in rebellion to the creator of heaven and earth. And, and the purpose of God's judgment through all of history is never it's not vindictiveness, it's, it's not hatred, it's not anger, it's, it's with a purpose to actually turn people from the course that they're on to bring people to their senses. It's to turn us all from wicked ways. It's to turn us all from rebellion. It's to bring us to repentance so that we understand that we're heading in completely the wrong direction and we need to turn back to God in Jesus. Extreme problems call for extreme measures. That's what we're seeing just now in the crisis that's engulfing the world around us. Extreme problems call for extreme measures, measures we would never imagine taking in ordinary times. And the three final woes announced by trumpets at five, six, and seven particularly illustrate this. The fifth warning brings a star that falls to earth, reminds us of Isaiah's account of Satan's fall in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen, O day star, son of dawn, says Isaiah. 
Satan, this fallen star, is given the key to the bottomless pit. Remember, who holds the key from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17 and 18? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is a vision of the risen Christ. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So why does Jesus give Satan the key of hell? Well, it's to bring people to their senses, to help them experience a taste of what it holds, to realize the the terrible consequence of choosing rebellion against God rather than finding a wholeness in his love, uh, which, you know, and if we we do that, we, we always lead to this end. If people cannot bear to live in the presence of God, God doesn't force them to live in his presence. This is the stark alternative that they're preferring. And in the awfulness of being given up by God to the consequences of the choices that they have made, many people would choose death as a way out. In chapter 9 and verse 6, we we see that. um, In those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Because in his mercy, God doesn't permit them that choice. God knows there is something worse than death. There is eternal separation from God's presence. God is light, or or to borrow uh, George Herbert's words that we just heard, softness and peace and joy and love and bliss. To be separated from God is to be separated from all he is, from all these things. It's not a choice any of us would make if we really thought about it. Again, the sixth trumpet unleashes a terrible invasion, an army of 200 million against a third of humanity. Maybe after the two world wars of the last century and the wars that have continually engulfed our world even since then, we perhaps begin to understand the horrors that this particular part of the vision points to. Sadly, despite sounding these warning calls loud and clear, many ignore the warning. Because look at Revelation 9 and verse 20. The rest of mankind, those who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. Nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or sexual immorality or their thefts. The seventh and final trumpet is followed by a proclamation, a loud proclamation in heaven. This is the bit we need to hold on for. This is the good news. This is the great answer to all our prayers. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.
seven seals, seven trumpets, and the kingdom of God comes on earth, even as it is in heaven. Listen to the trumpet calls sounding through our world even today. Alarms that point us to the terrible consequences of the choices we've made. Listen and understand what those alarms are alerting us to. History, as we know it, will be drawn to an end to allow his story to be fully worked out. So don't ignore the alarm when you hear it. There are terrible consequences for going your own way without God. Pay attention to the alarm. Take action. Come to God in repentance and faith in Jesus before it is too late. Accept the salvation of God rather than confronting the judgment of God. God wants you to experience his love in Jesus. As Jesus himself uh, explained it, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God wants you to know his mercy in Jesus. God wants you to find his future, the future that you can only find in his son and when you hear the alarms sounding and hear and see the terrible consequences of judgment, listen to the words of Jesus from the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Let's pray together. Lord God, Sometimes your word to us is hard to take in. Sometimes your word to us speaks to the very depths of our being. Sometimes we resist that word. Sometimes we don't taste any sweetness, we just feel it curdling. Lord, help us to see your mercy and your grace. Help us to see your love and your forgiveness in Jesus. Help us to see the future that you are calling us to, to be part of the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to see that you want to embrace us in your love, that that is why you have warned us and you are warning us because you want us to be with you forever and ever in and through Jesus. We pray that this would be the reality that would engulf every person here present today. May we all be found in you, and may we all find our eternal home in you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.